0: Step back in time with me, if you would, to uh, the year 61 A.D. The Colosseum is filled with gladiators. Men are fighting for the glory of Rome. Rome is at its apex of splendor. The Praetorian Guard is in control. The Praetorian Guard protects Caesar and all the things that interest Caesar. Caesar. One particular detachment of the Praetorian Guard has been sentenced to watch over an especially dangerous prisoner, not because of his financial strength and not because of his military prowess, but because he's espousing a new king. He's espousing a king that would replace Caesar in the hearts of men. His name is Paul. Previously known as Saul. And in the midst of his imprisonment while he's being watched by the Praetorian Guard, he takes time to sit down with the aid of his young understudy, Timothy, and he writes to you a letter. Seven years earlier, he founded a church called Philippi Church, the Church of Philippi, a city that was very prosperous. And to these people whom he has not seen in a very, very long time, he writes a book that we call Philippians, the letter to the people at Philippi. And now they're going to receive his counsel in the same way that you are. I'm not inviting you to turn to Philippians at this point. Just read along with me on the screen. I want you to catch the context of this from a man who's sitting in a prison cell. And these are the things that are important to him as he's thrown off all the entanglements of life. Chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." You may have a copy of the NIV that you personally own, and you might be more familiar with it this way. It says, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. No doubt, as an aged man, Paul may have many times thought back to when he was a younger man, when Jesus Christ laid hold of him. If you're not familiar with the story, it happened when he was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus Christ laid hold of him for a distinct purpose and made him like a blind man. Matter of fact, in Acts 9.8 it says, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Three days with no eyesight, humbled beyond belief, God knew that's the way Paul needed to see himself. God knew that Paul needed a recorrection of his lenses through which he saw God. Humbled beyond belief, sitting blind, he was very aware that in his younger years, he was a man who was unstoppable. Maybe like some of you in this room, he was climbing the corporate ladder of the religious world. A Pharisee of Pharisees, on his way to become a rabbi, having studied under Gamaliel, highly educated, and now a man who's destined to be a beggar because he's been made blind. He encountered Jesus Christ on the road. Jesus took hold of him. And blind people have no future in the ancient world. They have to become beggars. They have no source of income. So day one goes by, day two goes by, Day three goes by, and he's still blind. And he doesn't know that God's going to restore his eyesight. All he knows is that he's just another sinner in need of a Savior. It is a rarity for any of us to be able to see ourselves as we really are before Christ laid a hold of us. We really don't understand how wretched our life is until God takes a hold of us and claims us for his own. That's what Paul's seeing himself as. He understands there's a principle of being freed. He's living in bondage. He is a prisoner now. Now, when he writes Philippians, he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ willingly. Here, he's a prisoner of a blind man, and he's got a lot to learn. It is really crucial that we understand the context of this. Saul got up from the ground, found himself completely blind, and understood that he had no future. And God said, I am claiming you for my own. You are going to do a work for me, and I am going to release you and set you free. We can get a better understanding of what Paul went through if you turn with me to the book of Luke. We've been there for the last few weeks as people along the way have met God, have encountered Jesus. If you remember, we started with a Samaritan woman at the well. Then we moved on to Nicodemus, the lawyer, who encountered Jesus. And we moved on last week to the tax collector, the financial person, who encountered Jesus. Now we're going to look at a person who is a blind man. If you're using the pew Bibles in front of you, you're going to find it in page 63 in the Black Bible and 743 in the Brown Bible. Luke 18. By the way, if you don't have your own Bible, maybe it's your first time visiting here with us today, if you'd like to, you're welcome to take those Bibles with you, one of those Bibles, call it your own, take it out the door with you this morning, we have others to replace those. Luke 18 and verse 35 is where I want you to join me this morning. It says this, As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Verse 42. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. It's AD 33. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. And this very poor, wretched man is sitting outside one of the wealthiest cities in the area of Samaria, of of Judea great place to be if you're a beggar. We talked about Zacchaeus last week as a tax collector. Great city to be in because of the prosperity. This is a great place to be if you're a beggar, if you need to take in income. I would like you to do something with me this morning. I'd like you just to close your eyes and shut them tightly and just imagine this description. Just close your eyes and I'll tell you when to open them. You've heard of the magnificent palm trees, but you've never seen them. You've smelled the rose gardens, but you've never seen a rose petal. You've heard from your friends about this incredible balsam grove, and you can smell the fragrance of it, but you've never actually seen it. You can feel the warmth of the Mediterranean sun on your cheeks and it beats brightly but you've never seen blue sky. You've heard about all the fruit trees but you've never actually seen a bumblebee pollinate the flowers of a fruit tree. You've felt tears slide down your cheek but you've never seen your own face with your eyes still tight, shuttly, <laughs> tightly shut, I'd like you just to reach out in front of you and try and grab the pew rack in front of you. It's difficult to do, isn't it? Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. You've partially entered the world of a blind man. You have the privilege of opening your eyes back up. He couldn't do it. Day after day, After day, he took his cloak off, he threw it on the ground, and as people walked by, he would beg, alms, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. People would throw coins onto the cloak. It's not uncommon to see a blind person in this area. First century Jericho is at the height of its splendor. Now he hears this marvelous crowd move by. As a matter of fact, it's such a large crowd that it disturbs him. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 20, it was a very large crowd that followed him. Blind people typically develop other senses. My dad happens to be blind in one eye. And he has senses that are a little more refined than the rest of us in our family. People who are totally blind, they can hear a little bit better. They can certainly smell a lot better. This guy doesn't need any extrasensory perception to understand that there's a really large disturbance moving through the streets that are normally just made up of passerbyers buyers of the wealthy going in and out to do their trade. This is a very large crowd. And so he hears the disturbance, and verse 35 says, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. This large crowd understand is on their way to Passover in Jerusalem. You no doubt have watched on New Year's Day the the Rose Bowl parades. Perhaps you've seen the static electricity in the air. Everybody knows there's a game coming later that day, and this marvelous parade gets to go by, and you get to watch it. The air is static with the electricity. People are enthusiastic. That's what's going on here. Jesus is extraordinarily popular. This is one week before the crucifixion. Jesus is about to be proclaimed king by all those who are watching him. And this man, found at the city gate, hears the disturbance. Adam, put the slide up of the beggars. First century beggars. They don't have a whole lot to offer to the world, do they? Most people seeing them pay no heed, no attention to them at all. And the few that do throw coins their way don't come in contact with them. They're considered sinners. God caused them to be that way. There must be some sin in their life or they would not be that way. That's why you hear the disciples ask the questions, who caused this man to sin? His parents? Why is he blind? They ask questions like that because they associated sin with physical sickness. Now this man is calling out for money and he hears the crowd go by. Verse 36. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. What's going on? Walking right in front of you is Jesus of Nazareth. Right there. What would you do in his shoes? This is a pretty remarkable situation. We don't know if there's hundreds of thousands or millions Some estimates are that there were as many as 2 million people who came into Jerusalem for the Passover from all around the countryside. This is a huge group of people. And he's going to start yelling over the top of them, what would you do if you were in his sandals and you were blind and you couldn't see anything and your life was relegated to that of a beggar? Let's look at what he does. Verse 38. And he called out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept on crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. I want you to get a picture of this. He yells this at a volume you're not used to. So I'm going to remove the microphone so I don't blow your ears out. Jesus, Son of David! like you're at an MSU game, okay? You get that? This is like Jesus has just scored a touchdown and you want his attention. This is yelling full volume. And the word picture here is, he doesn't stop. He doesn't let up. The word used here is kradzo, meaning continuously over and over and over again. Mark 8.30 says that, Jesus had warned people previously not to tell them who he was. And this term that he's using, son of David, he's not supposed to be using. Previously, Jesus had warned people about using this phrase. Verse 39 says, Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying all the more. Jesus, in this instance, does not tell him to not use the term son of David. It may not mean much to you, but the term Son of David is a messianic title. It goes back to the Old Testament in which they said, when Messiah comes, he will be called Son of David. So when he's calling out this title, he's saying, you're the Messiah. And he's saying it so loud, people are actually disturbed by what he's saying. And he's interrupting Jesus, who's on his way to the party at the Passover. They don't want their party interrupted. And so they're saying, be quiet. This is the first time, and you can check it out yourself, the first time that I can find any place in Scripture where Jesus is publicly called the Son of David, where he's publicly called Messiah. So how does this guy, who's a beggar, sitting in the side of a vacation town, begging outside of a gate, understand that this is the Messiah walking by. How does a beggar who's blind not know that? I'll tell you how. Jewish young men, from the time they were children, were taught the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And they understood that the coming Messiah would have certain quality traits to him, unmistakable traits, traits that no one else had done, Let's read Isaiah 61 and see what it has to say. It'll come up on the screen. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. This is a messianic prophecy written hundreds and hundreds of years before about who Messiah would be that he would be someone who would bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness. Release from darkness means healing blind people. This was highly uncommon. Brokenhearted, let's look at the word right there. It'll come up on the screen. Brokenhearted means somebody who has an expectation, but their heart is just bursting because it hasn't come to be yet. This man has an expectation. He is brokenhearted, but there is no way out of his darkness. Let's look at the other word that's used, prisoners, a ka, to yoke or hitch, somebody who's been fastened. Think of someone with handcuffs on, being controlled by other people. He cannot control his own destiny. He's been made a prisoner, much like Paul when Paul was blind. John 9:32 says that this was a very uncommon occurrence. Read this with me. Since the beginning of time it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God he could do nothing. This is speaking of another time in history when Jesus healed another blind man, but this was very uncommon. You may think as you read the New Testament that these healings were common, they took place all the time. It is not the case. These were very uncommon. And Jesus heals a man who's completely blind. This sets people apart. It's saying, this guy has to be Messiah. And no doubt, Bartimaeus, the blind man sitting there, had heard the stories of Jesus healing other people. So he's about to get very, very vocal about it. Verse 39 again says, Telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Look at the definition of how loud he's crying. Can you bring that one up, Adam? Like a wild animal trapped. The word krodzo. Have you ever heard an animal trapped in a cage before? That's how desperate this guy is to get out of his situation. What motivates him? What motivates him to keep crying so loud that he's a public display to everyone and he doesn't care? He understood what many people in modern America fail to understand. This is the king of kings. This is the creator of the universe. This is God incarnate. Jesus Christ, Messiah, coming king. And he understands it. So that's why he's yelling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. What do you want me to do for you? Isn't that an interesting response that Jesus gives to him? Even though he knows he's blind. Mark gives us a detail. This story, by the way, is also told in Matthew chapter 20 and in Mark chapter 10. And Mark chapter 10 says that when Jesus stopped and said, Bring the man to us, he did something very interesting. He threw away his cloak, the thing that he'd been gathering money on, and people pulled him up. It says he intentionally flipped over his cloak and went to Jesus. He no longer needed to beg for money. He understood. His destiny was about to change. Verse 40, And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? I find that really fascinating. God wants us to articulate specifically what we need. When's the last time you've ever been that clear with God, When you said specifically, God, this is exactly what I need. Verse 41, and he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. The NIV says, Lord, I want to see. Have you ever been that clear with God about something that is really a problem for you? God, I've got this credit card bill and I cannot pay it and it's $2,300. God, I've got this car, and it's about to die. I need a new car. God, I have a husband or a wife who is not following you, and I want them to become a Christ follower. Bring someone into their life. How specific do you need to be? God gives us an example in which he wants us to be very specific. Jesus wasn't confused by the fact the guy was blind. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And he was very specific. I want to see. When we pray, there is a great temptation to try and impress God with our words. To try and make him think that because we use long, flowery words, we're somehow spiritually deeper and closer to him. This is a very specific request. I want to see. Verse 42 says, And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has made you well. Luke leaves something out that Matthew included in his version of the story. It says this: Jesus had compassion and touched him on the eye. Jesus reached out and put his hands on the eyes of the blind man and actually made physical contact with him my mind immediately goes back to Philippians. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. We read that in the very beginning. Jesus laid hold of each of you who are Christ followers. At some point, he laid hold of you. He took away the blindness that was upon you. He took the chains off from you and he set you on a path. Paul said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What did Jesus take hold of you for? Beyond salvation, beyond the promise of eternal life, this is a critical question. Jesus laid hold of you for a purpose. Many people become so complacent, they forget that. God gave you a destiny. Now verse 43 says, Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Bart wants to start singing the doxology. He is enthusiastic. He's thrilled. And his thrill transfers over to the people who were just telling him to shut up. Stop talking. He doesn't want to hear you. All of a sudden now, they're praising God. Because he's praising God. Because God laid hold of him. What's happened here? Besides the fact that he got his vision back, he is still dirt poor. He can't even afford a pair of sunglasses to shield away the bright Mediterranean sun. He has no financial future. He has no job security. But he's thrilled because Jesus... Took hold of him. Isn't that fascinating that God laid hold of you at some point? He actually laid hold of you. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I wrestle with this principle routinely. And I'm sure that if you stopped and think about it, many of you may as well. That we settle, we settle far too often. For life as normal, as opposed to life as abundant. God laid hold of you for a distinct purpose. So I have two questions for you. What has Jesus taken hold of you for? And are you pursuing it relentlessly? That's what Paul said. I press on toward the goal. Are you pressing on? Are you pursuing it relentlessly? With the same fervor you pour into your business You transfer yourself forward in your business ladder? You try and climb higher and higher? Are you pursuing God the same way? Is it consuming you in the morning when you wake up? That's what Paul said. It consumes me. I press on. This, I think, is one of the things that's missed most by Christians today. Read with me John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life And have it abundantly. In the phraseology, and the way this is used, it means super abundant. Super abundant accomplishments on behalf of the kingdom. Abundantly pressing on. Continually striving. So you leave here today with marching orders. You have a responsibility to determine what it was that Jesus Christ laid hold of you for. And then to determine, am I going to take this seriously and pursue it relentlessly? Because there was a point, if you were a follower of Christ, when he laid hold of you and he took the blinders off your eyes and you shed the chains and now you're stepping forward into a newness of life. What did he call you for? I'm well aware that there's some in the room today who are not there yet. You're not following Christ yet. That's okay. I would love to talk with you. But you need to determine, is he who he really said he was? Because you have an opportunity to shed some heavy-duty chains. Those chains that are binding you up, Jesus said, I will release them. But ask yourself this question. What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Do you really believe that he is who he says he is? Because if you do, Christians, you have a responsibility to pursue him relentlessly. If you're not there yet, you're not a Christian, you have a responsibility to answer this question Do I believe that he is who he says he is? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm aware that after uh, this word that you've laid on my heart to share with your people, that it can feel like there's a weight laying on us, but you didn't share these kind of words because you want to wait on us, but rather because you want us to be released, to be abundant in you. Father, you desire that we would be a people who are determined to see your kingdom expand no matter what the cost. Help us to be as determined about your kingdom as we are about our families, as we are about our jobs, as we are about our relationships and the things that we want to obtain. God, I ask for this for myself included. We want to be a people who pursue you. Help us. Make us bold. God, I ask this for your people in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.